The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning, all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations comes from the Guardian Network. You know the old saying, a penny saved is a penny earned? How many pennies would you earn if you skipped your next venti iced mocha half-calf latte or that burger that needed five napkins? Over a lifetime, they add up. Like putting a kid through college add up. Find out where your priorities lie by playing the cash stash dash at livingconfidently.com slash play. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Uh, This week on the show, I am joined by a fellow money and psychology nerd, uh, Kathleen Kingsbury, who is a wealth psychology expert. She's the host of the Breaking Money Silence Podcast and author of the book, Breaking Money Silence, How to Shatter Money Taboos, Talk Openly About Finances, and Live a Richer Life. Uh, Investment News named her to a list of one of nine amazing conference speakers, Uh, and having heard her present myself, I can attest that it is the truth. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. I'm excited to be here. So uh, the name of your book and your platform is Breaking Money Silence, and I want to know a little bit about the size of this problem. How did you arrive at this as the thing that was going to be your life's work? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've always had a gift ever since I was very young of noticing the elephant in the room, for better or worse. In other words, what we're not talking about. And as I was uh, presenting and developing content for the financial services industry, what I noticed is time and time again, advisors would say to me, you know, I really want to have these conversations with clients about uh, the money and emotion connection, or I really think we need to be talking about legacy, but the clients don't want to do that. And then I would interview, um, you know, women and couples for my other books, and they would say, you know, my financial advisor doesn't do that. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, So I started to explore the disconnect. And what I found out was, to no surprise, that money talk uh, is taboo in our society, but that really someone needed to say, hey, it's not the client, it's not the advisor, it, it's all of us, and we need to all learn how to break our money silence. Um, and that's where the project came from. So it, it's interesting. I was doing some research on on couples and money recently, or really for about the, the last year. And one of the stats that I came across that has just stuck with me and has shocked me so much was it said that 12% of married couples who had been married for a, a significant period of time had never once had a conversation around money. And that just absolutely blew me away because I don't even know, uh, I don't even know physically how that's possible. I mean, it just seems like there's stuff you need to get done. So let's talk about this culture of, of money silence. Why is it so taboo? And do you see that changing at all? I feel like it's changing a little bit. I mean, I certainly feel like uh, through my podcast and the book and, you know, in my lofty way, I declared a breaking money silence revolution. Um, So I do feel like it's changing slightly, but not as fast as I would like to see it change. Uh, And I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's really hard to be in a couplehood and not 
occasionally talk about money. Um, but I think the longstanding belief that many of us were raised with is that money talk is rude, it's unnecessary. Uh, you know, if you don't talk about it, somehow you won't fight about it. And so this longstanding belief goes back centuries and it's passed down family to family to family. And I, I really think that it contributes to couples. Uh, not resolving conflicts and ultimately might contribute to a divorce. Uh, even more so, I think it contributes to uh, the financial literacy crisis in this country. And I really think that each and every one of us needs to dare to learn how to engage in a money conversation, even if it's small, in order to kind of move the needle forward. Because once you start talking about it, you learn so much about the other person. And yeah, sometimes you don't agree, but for the most part, it's not as horrible as I think we've been taught it can be. I, yeah, I, I would agree. And you think about the, um, you know, sort of the historically taboo topics, you know, the stuff you don't want to bring up at a, at a cocktail party. You think about sex and, you know, sex and religion and politics and, and, and money, these sorts of things. I would say we've made more progress on every other front. I would say it's very, you know, we're very comfortable talking about sex and politics and, you know, different historical taboos now more so than we are talking about money. Do you, do you see it the same way or no? I do. And that's, that's part of what I got curious about. You know, we share everything on social media about everything, but we still really struggle around money. And one of the statistics I often use is that 44% of Americans would rather talk about death, dying politics or religion than talk about personal finance with a loved one. Um, the other startling statistic that I recently stumbled across is 62% of women would rather talk about their own death than talk about money. So that taboo is really holding firm. So you're, you're really holding down uh, the least desirable spot in our culture, which is doing <laughs> public speaking, you know, because everyone would rather die than, you know, give a talk. So you're giving public speeches about this thing that no one wants to talk about. So thank you for, for doing society's dirty work, I guess. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I can remember right before my book was uh, published. So the book was done and, you know, you're waiting for that marketing phase. And, and I'm thinking with my team, okay, how do we market this? What do we want to do? Do. And then I realized, I said, I am marketing something that is the biggest taboo in our society. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure that was the best uh, decision. But ultimately, when the book came out at the end of 2017, I have actually found that people are hungry for these conversations. Um, a lot of the presentations I've been doing have both been to the professional world as well as uh, consumers. And once you say, you have permission to talk about this, people have a lot to say. So I think it's really just saying, it's an okay conversation to have with me, so let's have it. And then people realize, oh, this isn't so horrible, or hey, this might even be fun, which is kind of crazy. Let's not go crazy. I'm not going to, I'm not ready to know. It is fun. It's fun. It's fun for people like us. But you know, the psychologist in me wants to know about sort of the, the psychological mechanics of this. Like, what is it? What's the bottom most turtle? Like, what's the thing at the bottom of all this? Uh, is it, is it shame? Is it discomfort? Like, what is it about money in particular that makes it so thorny to talk about? Well, I think, you know, money is so much more complex than the math. I mean, we can all do the math around money, even people who aren't prone to um, or enjoy doing math like maybe you and I do. Um, I really do think it comes down to uh, individual shame 
uh, people feeling as if the person next to them does it better or the professional they're working with is judging them. And ultimately, what ends up happening is if we don't feel like we are comfortable enough talking about it, whether that's with our partner, our aging parent, our kid, or our advisor, that we end up just kind of fueling that shame. Uh, you know, you know this from being in the world of psychology, that saying that we're as sick as our secrets. And so one of the secrets is none of us have money completely figured out. It's not something that we do perfectly. But what I find is that it's really hard for people to admit that they don't know something or that they made a financial mistake. And as a result, we stay quiet. But if we break our money silence and share that with somebody else, what you find out is, oh, they've made mistakes too. Maybe they know something I don't know. And so if we could open up that dialogue, I think the shame would go down. Um, and I think talking about you know, the feelings that are related to different financial aspects of our life are important too. It isn't just about the numbers. Well, it's interesting because it occurs to me that there's there's no like appropriate number because we are uh, a society certainly that that fetishizes wealth and and you know encourages people to go out and make lots of money on the on the one hand, but we also punish the the wealthy, right? So I mean, um, we, you don't want to have not enough money, but there was a magazine article from from a few years back called "Is It Still Okay to Be Rich in America?" because you know so much of the political conversation is around wealthy people not paying their fair share and you know sort of demonizing people uh, people who have have a lot of money and so you don't want to have too little money but you don't either want to have too much money so it seems like we have a, you know what psychologists would call an approach avoidance relationship with money and that it's hard to know what the where the right place to be is I would absolutely agree. And I think that there's that disconnect or that that judgment, if we, and I know it's hard, but if we can let go of judging the person next to us or judging ourselves and instead look at how can I be the healthiest I can be in my relationship to money and how can I decide what financial success means to me as opposed to I have to always work and there's never enough money. Or the flip side that you're talking about is kind of the nobility of poverty. I know I raised um, to be a saver, to be a thrifty Yankee, and all of that is really good. It has made me very financially fit. The dilemma is when I started to become more financially successful, there was also an undertone of, you know what, just don't get too full of yourself. Or you can be financially successful, but you don't really want to be too financially successful. So a lot of us hit that wall of, oh, I don't want to be though, you know, one of those people. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be the top 1% or even be, you know, above my neighbor. And so um, I think it's really a complicated area that it's good that people like you and I and other people are talking about it because it, it isn't just, oh, there's a certain number to shoot for. Um, it, it's, there's so much tied up into who we are as people, what we think of other people. And, you know, it's, it's naive to say we can just let go of judgment, but I think being compassionate to yourself and compassionate to others, I know for myself, has really helped me accept people of all different wealth levels. It isn't really who you are. That's what you make. That's part of your life, but it's not all of who you are. So I think you hit the nail on the head talking about, you know, this process of personalization and developing what I would call a personal benchmark, this, this personal roadmap for your life. But it is, it's ex extremely hard in a, in a society where we're hit by whatever it is, 5,000 
advertisements per day, um, you know, telling us that we need this thing or that thing or that we need to, you know, be like this or that. So how do you encourage your clients to keep this sort of personal compass in the midst of the mixed uh, messages we're getting from, from the outside about wealth? I think what's important is to really get in touch with what your definition of success and what your goals and values are and to remind yourself when you get caught up either watching the media or you know you're at that cocktail party and all of a sudden you're not feeling enough or maybe you're feeling uncomfortable because you have more than other people to really kind of get back to what are those core values you know one example that i can offer from my own life is you know my husband and i about 5 years ago moved to a rural place in vermont um, and at the time we moved, you know, my career is upticking and, you know, a lot of people had said to me, you're crazy, you know, you need to live in Boston or a city and, you know, if you're going to really make it. And, you know, if we wanted to work 60, 70 hours a week and I really wanted to kind of continue to do that and earn more and more and more, yeah, maybe I would have made the decision to stay, but we made the decision to go and it's the best decision I've ever made in my life. And it wasn't related to money. It was related to the quality of my life. And ironically, Daniel, I have made more since I moved to Vermont than I made before. And I think it's because I value my time um, and when I go out to speak or train or engage, you know, I've just been a little bit more selective because the work-life balance, the being out in nature versus being in the office is how I define success. Now, I'm not saying that works for anybody who's listening in, but I think if you can get in touch with authentically what's important to me and then how do I remind myself every once in a while? Because trust me, I look at social media sometimes and I think, ooh, I should be out there more. <laughs> and then I realize, no, 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 this is what I chose and it's going just fine. So I, I think that's the first step. It sounds easy, but that's often where working with someone can be really helpful to help you identify those goals. And, it, and also it can be a great conversation to have with a partner. You know, it's fun to talk about your dreams and your goals. It doesn't have to be just about, oh, you know, do we have enough to pay this bill? You know, you you bring up a fan, fantastic point there because I know that that uh, one of the things that frustrates me the most is how successful uh, it has become a euphemism for making a lot of money. Uh, because for me, being successful means being a great dad, being a great husband, um, saying no to a lot of things. You know, uh, spending as much time at, at, at home as I can, and so success looks like different things for different people. And I think I'll speak for myself. I know that some of the financial decisions I've made uh, that were poor financial decisions have been a result of me uh, running someone else's playbook, me biting off wholesale sort of societal messages about what success should look like. And then I get to that, you know, the end of that road and I go, ah, this wasn't, this wasn't what I wanted. So, you know, having those conversations with yourself or with a partner about what does success look like for us? What does success look like for me in a very, very specific way? And it may look like moving to a rural Vermont. So uh, that's, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that it's easy, especially if you work in the field of financial services, uh, it's easy to get caught up in more, more, more. But I know that that's, you know, across the board. You know, I think, Daniel, that's where millennials may have a competitive edge. You may be millennial, but I'm not. Uh, in terms of really having a little bit more perspective around how much they want to experience life versus work during their life. 
Yeah, I'm too, I'm about a year and a half too old to be a millennial. So I'm just part of that, you know, sort of gross forgotten generation somewhere, somewhere in between Gen X and millennials. So I'm afraid I'm not one of the cool kids. So, um, one of the things that people uh, do when they find out that I'm a psychologist is that they hit me up for free therapy. Like, you know, God forbid I ever tell anyone on an airplane uh, that I'm a psychologist because, you know, <laughs> They're about to get, it's about to be free therapy from Atlanta to, you know, to San Diego. Uh, but now that I've got you on the line, I'm going to get some free therapy from you. And Excellent. we're going to turn the tables here because I want to talk about a story from my own life where, you know, people, people ask me how I got into behavioral finance and how I found myself to the world of money. And, you know, I, I have a good answer for this, but the real answer is it, it paid well because I got out of my PhD program. So I enter a PhD program in clinical psychology. I get out of the program. I start applying for clinical jobs, you know, jobs as a clinician, jobs as a, as a professor. And I got, you know, got job offers from, from a couple of places that were very much sort of in line with the typical path uh, for, for people with my same doctoral degree. And they they didn't pay enough. Like, I mean, they, I, I got these jobs and I looked at them and I went, oh my gosh, what have I done? Like I have gotten a degree that puts me in line for jobs that don't begin to cover the kind of life that I want to live. And I mean, look, I was 27 years old. It wasn't an extravagant life. Uh, but, but it's shocking to me that I, the son of a financial advisor, a guy that's, you know, relatively money-minded, even before I entered this world in earnest, could get that far down a path without considering how it sort of gelled with my financial goals. So how do we talk to our children about their careers and money and earnings power in a way that's meaningful to them? Because when I reflect back on 27-year-old Daniel, I just didn't have any concept of the kind of salary I needed uh, to, to make a living. So how do we begin to have a break that money silence with kids? You know, that is a great question. My caveat is I overly identify with your story in that I got um, out of being a counselor after 15 years as a result of being tired of being an under earner. Um, but I also feel as if this is an important conversation to have because um, Nowadays, when you think about going to college or getting an education, a lot of um, young people are making decisions, in my opinion, solely on what they're going to earn. And so the dilemma is, how do we have a conversation with somebody who is in high school about what their passion is and what they can expect in terms of income. And so I feel like it's twofold. It's, you know, we used to not talk about it at all. And a lot of us ended up, I wasn't, but a lot of us ended up as liberal arts majors or getting these degrees that don't pay. Um, the flip side is a lot of people talk, you know, just focus on money and end up in a degree or a career that they're not happy in. So I really think it's about talking to our young people, you know, maybe before high school about, um, you know, being financially fit about what does that mean for them? And when you're having the conversation about what you want to do after you graduate from high school, having a conversation about what is your passion? What are your goals? What are the things that, that really excite you? 
as much as you can know at that age? And uh, what do you anticipate your life will be like if you pursue that path? So one woman that I um, know, a colleague of mine, actually has these college discussions with parents. And one of the things she does is she has the uh, young person actually forecast a budget. So you're already graduated from college. You have this degree. Let's look at what your life will look from a monetary standpoint. So to really make it applicable to their lives and have them participate in figuring that piece out. Um, the, my The other thought I have before I'll let you kind of respond uh, is that, you know, we all end up making it work somehow. So I feel as if if you need to course correct after you get out of college or after you get out of grad school, that that's part of life and that I'm not sure we can 100% avoid that. It's interesting because one of the things that I found is that everyone's, you know, the way you grow up becomes your average. That becomes your set point. And we all, you know, wealth is a very a relative phenomenon, right? Like we, we even the poorest people in, in America today have quite a bit more than, you know, someone, uh, the richest person who lived 500 years ago. Uh, but wealth is a, a relative phenomenon. And so we think about it in relative terms. So however you grew up, uh, becomes kind of your set point, and I think what you're comfortable with in many respects. And so I think we have to have conversations around like, okay, how can you achieve sort of what you're used to? And that's going to look, you know, different for different people. But you know, you brought up a great point because uh, I have this conversation with my with my wife all the time. You know, a lot of people. Um, sort of gave me a hard time for studying psychology in college because they're like, oh, you know, you're going to work, you're going to work at Applebee's kind of thing. You're like, what are you, what are you going to do with this? And I even had, I even had one girlfriend in college break up with me because I wouldn't, I wouldn't switch to becoming a business major. And as things got, you know, serious with us, she's like, look, I don't want to be a psychologist's wife, right? This is like not, not the life I have planned financially. And so it's interesting, though, because I make much more now than uh, as a result of following my passion than I would have if my parents had sort of forced me into becoming, you know, whatever, an accountant or an engineer or something that was sort of a had a tried and true path to a, a middle class or an upper, upper middle class salary. But that's not always the case. I mean, there's a counterfactual element to that, too. I could be making uh, significantly less if I had sort of stayed on the path I was on. So it is tricky to know how to encourage kids to be to be honest with themselves about the kind of earnings they expect, but also of following their dreams and pursuing a passion, which leads to the possibility, at least, of some big upside if you pursue that dream. Yeah, it's complicated. You know, one of the things I just want to react to is the whole, in your girlfriend, it sounds, or your previous girlfriend, it sounds like you dodged a bullet there. Um, but I also think she has a point or she represents kind of a, a dilemma that's in our society is why do we do value professions that actually, to be honest with you, really hard, uh, a lot of emotions, a lot of extra work you're not paid for, and somehow we don't value counseling or schools. And believe it or not, I think that's related to the issues we have around talking about money. Because we will talk a little bit about dollars and cents, but we have trouble in our society talking about the emotions related to money. So I also think when you're talking with the young person, giving them permission to 
pursue a passion to look at where might the overlap be in terms of how much you might make and will this get you to you know where you are already or will this be something that will be a trajectory higher than our socioeconomic status currently which is you know interesting from a psychological standpoint anyway but also the fact that you know what are your feelings around if you make less if you make more or that we're even having this financial conversation. You know, I, I think that there's a bigger picture there. And I also think the dilemma that you raise is suppose you come from a very affluent family and you want to do something where you're going to make less. You know, often we, as you said earlier, vilify wealthy families. Well, that's a real dilemma for those uh, kids of affluent homes of wow, you know, I'm not going to be the next Steve Jobs or I'm not going to be, you know, the next Zuckerberg. And so what does that mean? Who am I going to be? Am I going to make enough? So it's a very, very complicated conversation where I think if we teach young people to be financially literate, to uh, engage in money talk early and often in their lives and also learn how to pursue their passion, uh, that we'd be better off if we covered those three areas as opposed to just focusing on the money or focusing on, you know, the passion. It has to be the overlap between the two. You need to be an adult who can pay your bills. You also um, need to not rely on, you know, whatever your inheritance is. So you you bring up a great point. I've you know in the course of my work uh, had the had the opportunity to meet a lot of really wealthy families, right? And I've met the the children of these wealthy families and have seen how they've gone about creating meaning, because in some cases these um, these kids their their parents are literally billionaires, and so uh, you know that's a hard act to follow uh, in a financial sense. And so in, in both of these cases that I'm thinking about, the kids were very intentional in saying, you know, look, if I, if I spend my life trying to out-earn my parents and, you know, create businesses that are more financially successful for them, probabilistically speaking, that's a, that's a long shot. And so both of them took the path of saying, I'm going to create meaning and success in my life by being philanthropic or artistic or creative. And they've both really thrived and are both doing, you know, important work in the world because they broaden that definition of success away from just dollars and cents. And have said, you know, uh, how can I take this gift I've been given and, and, you know, still make meaning with it instead of banging my head against the wall of trying to be more, you know, successful than my parents in the, in the financial sense. And so it's, it's easy to, to look at billionaires kids and go, well, that, that's not me, but I think we're all dealing with that in microcosm, right? We have these the households that we grew up in. We have the hopes and dreams of ourselves and our parents. And it's only as we have a candid conversation of, around that, that we're able to make correct decisions for ourselves and our families. So with, with this in mind, you know, one of the things that I find with, with families that have means, families that have a little money, is they're reticent to talk to their kids about, about how much they make, about how much the kids stand to inherit, uh, I think for, for a couple of reasons. And one is that the future is uncertain. And even families with, you know, significant wealth, you know, it can go away, businesses can can turn down, health problems can arise. So they don't want to give folks false expectations. And I think even bigger than that is they don't want them to coast. 
They don't want them to know, look, you're going to come into a lot of money one day and, and have the, the children use that as an excuse to, to not try a, a very hard or maybe underperform. So could you speak to that a bit? Sure. You know, I, I've seen a lot of that as well. And, you know, one of the things that I always feel now that I've worked with people who have affluence and, and the next generation is a lot of compassion that, you know, we all have some struggles in our 20s and our 30s and trying to figure out what we're going to do. And it may be that you come from, you know, affluence or it may be that you are struggling uh, at a different socioeconomic status, but, you know, the compassion. And I think with children who are going to inherit a large amount and parents who uh, are reticent to talk, that usually what I say to them is I say, you know what, your, your fear is that your kid is going to be a slacker or a rich brat. And many, many families fear that. But the likelihood of them coasting is greater if you don't engage in a conversation with them about what it means to be financially fit, what the expectations are in this family around you know, paying your own bills. And I also think a key factor is encouraging them to work. And so you know, when you come from a middle-class family, going to work at 16 or 17 is something that you do because you know you're not going to be able to put gas in your car and mom and dad are going to make you pay insurance you know, or you want to go to the movies. So it becomes like you have to do it. If you're from an affluent family, you know, mom and dad can just hand you the money. But I find that, that when mom and dad actually say, no, you need to work and we need to have you put on a budget and you need to figure out, you know, all the lessons that come from work, that if you look at the case studies in those situations, that through that experience of work, they have figured out a little bit about their purpose in life, they become more financially fit, and the family has had an overt conversation about, yes, we have means, but this is still the expectation we have for you, not because we're withholding and we're being mean by withholding our wealth, but because we love you, and this is part of what you need to learn to do as an adult. Not an easy conversation, but I find that parents who start early and talk about it often and or work with someone uh, who's like a wealth psychology expert or family wealth consultant that they can engage in these conversations. And the outcome is usually pretty good, uh, similar to the two cases you just talked about. Yeah. So you mentioned it earlier in our conversation today. Uh, you've been an outspoken advocate for financial literacy training, uh, especially early on. And this concept has actually been very much in the news lately, and ha there's been some hot uh, controversy around it. So this week, Richard Thaler, the behavioral economist, Nobel Prize winning behavioral economist, uh, came out and said effectively, yeah, financial literacy training in high school, say, is, is good, but then made the point, you know, how much do you remember about your high school trigonometry and said, you know, look, you can train kids a bit about to be financially literate in, in high school, but then they're going to need this just in time advice because you just don't retain that much. And this has gotten, uh, you know, a mixed bag of reactions. Some people being critical of Thaler, some people very much on board with this. I think we all can agree that that we need some help, but what ought that help to look like? Is is education the, the surest route there? Is it this just-in-time advice? Is it governmental consumer protection programs? How can we get people practically to make better decisions with money? Well, it's interesting. I don't often you know, disagree with a Nobel Prize winner, uh, but I actually think that... Um, 
be having these programs in high school and even younger is important. And I also think we need to look at how we are educating people, whether it is a young person or an adult around money. And so I would say that we need to make it more engaging. And so to Thaler's point that you don't remember a lot about trigonometry, um, yeah, you don't because you don't use it every day. But if we made lessons in trigonometry experiential and related to our lives, and I wouldn't know how to do that even though I got an A, I just got an A because I knew how to take a test. (laughs) But if we made the financial literacy lessons more applicable to the young person's life, they would integrate it into um, their experience. So I believe that you know, we don't need to know trigonometry to be able to live adult lives. We do need to know how to pay bills. We do need to know how to save money. We do need to know how to financially take care of ourselves. And I would argue, engage in open and honest financial dialogues. And so because we need all of those things, I think it's a life skill that should be taught at an early age. I also think it involves, you know, parents, schools, I'm not necessarily for government mandates. I think consumer protection programs are great, but I think, boy, wouldn't it be great if we already knew how to protect ourselves? And one of the things that I've always been passionate about for years now is the idea of making financial literacy fun and making it uh, more interactive. So yeah, we all roll our eyes when someone says, okay, I'm going to talk to you about compound interest. You know, we all, oh, here we go again. Um, Because we're not all math nerds. But if we made it, you know, here, we're going to talk about, you know, how you're going to be able to save and get that car. Or, you know, you want to go to that concert and I know you want two t-shirts instead of one. Or, hey, we just watched a movie and there were some cool money messages. Let's talk about it. I think if you make it more engaging and fun, you would get more buy-in. People would integrate the knowledge more. And um, then, in addition, having the advice of somebody who's not emotionally involved will be useful. But I think we really need to work at getting our financial literacy uh, statistics up in this country. Well, you you make a great point that you don't have to use trigonometry every time you buy a, a soda at the store. I mean, you know, you 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 transact some sort of financial business probably multiple times each each day. And the, the same can't be said for trigonometry. So there's, there's something to be said for if we could teach people some basic tenets of, of financial literacy, they would see those things play out in their day-to-day in a very real way. And, and hopefully those things would stick with them. You know, and I wrote in the, I wrote in the Laws of Wealth about, about the power of financial literacy it being powerful for two reasons, you know, one is if you get an early start, money compounds, and that's its its own sort of miracle, and that's its own sort of uh, addictive behavior to watch your money make you more money. Uh, but good behavior compounds too, and the earlier we can teach folks to to do the right thing, the more natural that becomes. And there's this natural mechanism we have. Dan Gilbert's talked about it. He calls it synthesizing happiness whereby we, the decisions that we make, we tend to pat ourselves on the back for. And the decisions that we let go, you know, the road not taken, we tend to denigrate. We tend to come up with, with reasons why we're not doing that. So if, if you can teach folks from an early age that you know, saving, saving money is a back-padding behavior and that not buying a boat or a big house is a, you know, is a, is a behavior that's worthy of, of being avoided, you begin to, to sort of precipitate a virtuous cycle. So money compounds, but good behavior compounds as well. And the earlier we can start that compounding process on both fronts, I think the, the better off we are. 
really gets back to money shame, right? So if you start younger and you feel better about your relationship with money, um, you know, and what you just talked about with that process, that there's going to be less shame. And then people are going to be more open about engaging in the conversation and um, learning more and taking care of themselves. I think the other piece that I want to add uh, to this conversation about financial literacy is, you know, I joke, I said earlier, it can be fun. And, and I actually think it can. I mean, there's a, a radio or a podcast out there called Nothing Funny About Money. I don't know if you've heard it before. Uh, I'm going to be co-hosting a couple of the upcoming episodes. And the whole premise is that we can have fun while we learn about money. And I think that if we were able to have some levity around it, that some of the shame gets decreased. Um, humor often helps people connect and it is a way of taking a threatening topic and make it, making it less threatening. So I think anytime we can do something like that. I've also done motion graphics where they're kind of fun, funky motion graphics around concepts around financial literacy that are a little bit more engaging. So I really think anybody out there that works in this space, we need to really think about how do we use new media? How do we get creative? And how do we just um, allow people to get as financially fit as as they want to, because by the way, not everybody wants to be a master at this, um, and also encourage them, to Thaler's point, to reach out to a professional and get that support as well. I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's both. Well, you know, I didn't pursue a career in investment management and finance early on because I didn't understand it. You know, I thought it was just math. And when I started to learn that you could study money and be creative and that there were strong interpersonal elements to it and behavioral elements to it, that world opened up to me a bit. So I think you're exactly right. We can make this fun and we can, we can give a fulsome education of what it means to be financially fit, to break money silence, because I think a lot of people get the, the wrong idea about this. So uh, one thing I want to touch on in, in closing, it wouldn't, be, uh, it wouldn't be fair to have this conversation with you without giving a nod to some of the work you've done as a, as a powerful voice in the industry for a greater gender equity and financial roles, uh, both in the home and in the, the industry itself. Uh, you cited a recent UBS study that found that a, a slight majority, 58% of women, uh, leave large financial decisions to their husbands. Uh, why is this a bad idea and what can be done about it? You know, it was disheartening to see uh, that research come out because it was new and it was, uh, you know, all different generations, so younger generations as well. And and I think it's a bad, it's not a bad idea to collaborate with your partner, um, but it's a bad idea to let anybody, whether it's your husband, your financial advisor, your parents, whatever, make decisions for you and you not to be an active participant. Um, I know many couples divide and conquer, and I'm all for that, um, but it's also having a conversation and making sure that your voice is heard. So if you are leaving your financial decisions, especially your large financial decisions up to, in this instance, your male partner, what that means is that you aren't taking the time to understand uh, the financial process. You aren't uh, your voice in terms of the goals and values and dreams aren't there. And you're also probably not learning more about your financial life. Now we hear about this often, you know, you may get divorced you may be widowed. And that happens more often than not. Uh, and women primarily during the course of their lives are going to need to manage their money themselves. So part of it is 
you know, you may ultimately be in a position where you need to make these decisions. And wouldn't it be great if you learn that skill during your lifetime, as opposed to when you're grieving or when you're really, um, you know, in a life transition. The other point is, I really think as women in general, if we are going to close the wage gap and we are going to stand up for ourselves and say, financially, we deserve what men get out there uh, in the workplace, um, we need to also take an active role at home. Now, I'm not saying that a couple's dynamic should shift and match my couple's dynamic, where my husband and I are partners in these decisions, but I do think that women need to take on that responsibility. Uh, the dilemma, Daniel, is that when we do uh, take care of ourselves financially, that what ends up happening and what ha- uh, is our society judges us very unfairly. So if you know, we're seen as difficult or assert, not assertive, but aggressive. Uh, you know, I've been called profit motivated, which for a man is a compliment, but for a woman, somehow that makes you unattractive. And so um, I really just think that's a great place to start. Be involved in these decisions, take an active role. And if you're not, then spend some time just wondering why. Is it because you're money avoidant? Is it because you, fe- you have shame around money? Is it that you you know, just prefer not to deal with it, whatever the case may be, I think it's time for um, men and women, by the way, um, to stand up and be more financially literate and talk more openly and honestly about money. Yeah, you you make a great point. And I'll give a, a personal anecdote. You know, in, in my family, we sort of divide the financial responsibilities with with my wife running more of sort of the day-to-day and me doing more of the longer-term retirement planning and investment management piece, you know, candidly, when you're, you know, when, when one partner writes books about managing money for a living, it becomes very easy to sort of offload the money management responsibilities to that, to that partner. But about a year and a half ago, we had a conversation because I said, look, if I, you know, if I get hit by a truck, you know, if I get hit by a truck, you need to, you need to know what to do. And so we took, uh, we took the time to, uh, talk about it, to plan about it, to collaborate and include documents in our uh, end of life planning in our will that says like, you know, here is, here's what we're going to do uh, if, if something happens. And I know that m- my wife, who was uh, initially not, you know, super excited about that conversation actually has said many, many times since, you know, look, that's, I'm really glad we did that. That's a real comfort to me. I'm glad I know what to do if, you know, if, and when you're, you're not around. So it wasn't a fun conversation at first, but it was one that we're, we're definitely glad that we had and we had it because of the advocacy of people like you. So I appreciate you trying to move the needle uh, culturally where we can view women wanting to be equal partners in this regard as the the good that it is and not being and not to try to position being profit motivated or financially fit as some sort of pejorative let me just jump in real quick because I think um, I thank you for sharing that. I, I'm glad that uh, there's some inspiration there. But also in my own life, you know, I'm the one who writes the books. I'm the one that has a finance and a psychology degree. Um, and so when I wrote the book, How to Give Financial Advice to Couples, before that, I said, if I'm going to write a book and say couples need to talk about money, then you know, we need to do more talking about money. And similar to your wife, I don't think my uh, husband, who's an engineer and very bright, but didn't, I don't think he thought, oh, great, let's spend Saturday talking about money. And so uh, we ended up having lots of conversations and now we, he participates in all the meetings. And what was so interesting to me, and the reason I share this is because it 
could go either way gender-wise in terms of who takes the lead role. What was really interesting to me is my husband had really intelligent things to say in the meeting. He had a really great perspective. And I thought, wow, two minds are better than one. So even if it's not a financially dominant person or the person who you know looks on paper to be uh, the financial one, that having that other perspective is just so useful. Um, and it really has made a difference. It sounds like in your life, Daniel, and also in mine, and I know many, many other couples as well. It's a, it's a great point that where if, if you are the partner, whatever your gender, if you're the partner that's maybe less involved or less fluent in these decisions to, to get involved, to have those conversations, and you, you make a great point. We know the research says that teams, and that's all a, a couple is, you know, teams that are psychologically diverse make better decisions than, than those who are psychologically homogenous. So that second perspective is going to be really powerful. So after a great conversation about all things psychology and wealth, we're going to have a little fun on our way out the door here, uh, Kathleen. So I want to, I want to do what, what every shrink loves to do, which is have you free associate. So you're going to lay back on the chaise lounge and I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to prompt you with a <laughs> phrase and then I want you to just give me the first, the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Sure. All right. The holiday with the best candy. You know, I don't like Halloween and there's some deep seated issues that we won't get into today. So I'm going to say Christmas. Okay. So Christmas, the correct answer was Easter, but we'll accept, we'll accept. Correct answer. Ooh, I didn't know I had correct (laughs) free association. This is fun. I'm a Cadbury mini eggs enthusiast. So, um, (laughs) Uh, next, next prompt is Vermont. Awesome. Okay. Never been excited to visit soon. Uh, the worst financial decision that most people make. Buying timeshare. (laughs) The biggest money myth. Money talk is rude. There you go. And so last question, uh, what is a book or idea that changed your life? You know, it's such a great question there. You know, I love books, obviously. I'm an author. uh, But I think the book that really shifted or pivoted my life was the book called The Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge by Ted and Brad Klontz and Rick Kaler. It really opened my eyes to the whole field of money psychology at a time where um, I really needed some help on a personal level related to my relationship with money. And Ultimately, I have to say that that inspired my company, KBK Wealth Connection. So the financial wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge is certainly worth a read. Financial wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge, A Christmas Carol is top five favorite books of mine, absolutely jammed with life lessons. So I will give that book a read, which I have not, even though I'm uh, familiar with the work of the authors. I, I want to give a plug for, for your book uh, because I loved, I actually loved this. We were on a panel together and I was facilitating this panel and I asked you the same question and you said, you know, the, the book that I'd like, like to recommend is my book. I'd like to recommend Breaking Money Silence. <laughs> and I thought that was, I thought that was absolutely awesome because if you're not going to be uh, proud of your book, who is? So the the last uh, last thing is, if people have enjoyed this conversation, if people want to understand more about you and your platform, where can we read your work, listen to you, find you online? Where can people get in touch with you? The easiest place to go is my website, breakingmoneysilence.com. And everything that you need to know is right there, including the podcast, uh, the book, and links to other websites that serve advisors.
Kathleen, thank you so much for being here today. It's been an absolute joy. It's always fun to chat with you, Daniel. Thank you. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon the information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian trademark and the Guardian G trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018 Guardian.